Welcome listeners to BachCast number 10. I'm your host, John Hendren, and in this episode, we look at Bach's Goldberg Variations. find out more information about this podcast, go to bieberfan.org, the home of Bachcast, and also the home of classical and Baroque music reviews. That's B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N.org. Bach's Goldberg Variations, BWV 988, is a huge work. Now, unlike some of Bach's other works that have a BWV number that might be short, this one takes up at least one full CD. Bach composed a simple aria, uh, a piece in binary form in the key of G major, and it's loosely patterned after a Sarabande dance, and it opens and closes the work. What's in between, however, is really showing off Bach's genius. He takes his beginning song, if you will, and writes 30 variations upon that song. As bookends, the song, or the aria, kind of act as beginnings and end. And in the center, we get to see all of Bach's compositional skill at putting together variations on a theme. Now, many composers have explored this uh, practice in their, in their compositional history. Um, variations on a theme is kind of easy to do. If you can whistle a tune, uh, you can probably figure out there are ways to twist it or to turn it to make it more interesting. The rondo form, for instance, has a theme that repeats and returns. Sometimes it's varied, but sometimes it's not. And a rondo form is, uh, became popular in the classical era. And what makes it different is if we were to describe a rondo form in terms of its form. It would be A, B, A, C, A, D, A, E. We keep coming back to the same theme. However, the way Bach writes his Goldberg variations, number one, I'm not suggesting it's written in the rondo form, but we never tire of hearing the theme again because Bach chose not to uh, vary the melody. Instead, he chose the bass line to be the point of departure on which to build variations. Bach wrote this piece. um, We know a little bit of the history, and there's a little bit of lore that goes along with it. Supposedly, it was written for uh, a, a rich Russian diplomat who supposedly, as story goes, had a hard time falling asleep. And he called upon Bach to write him a set of variations that might help him go to sleep. Now, if you're like me, you might actually try this out and to see if the Goldberg variations make you sleepy. It was many, many years ago. I was still in high school, and I had a boombox type thing above my bed and it was the principal way I used to listen to music. And so I put in a recording of Bach's Goldberg Variations. And for the record, it was Tan Koopman, 
his recording on Arato that I had put in. And I decided to start out and see if it would lull me to sleep. Well, I probably got about 10 or 11 variations in and I had to turn it off because, in fact, it was not lulling me to sleep, even though I adjusted the volume several times, picturing, if you would, Bach playing several rooms down where I could hear kind of the the faint echoes of the harpsichord um, and having those variations put me to sleep. If you believe the story, it gets even more incredible because supposedly the Russians' uh, harpsichordist was a young guy named Goldberg. And where the story gets a little iffy for us is that Goldberg at the time was very young. Um, Perhaps too young to play music this virtuosic. So when we look at the story, we have to take it, I think, with a grain of salt. Uh, It would be improbable that uh, somebody would be expected to sleep during this very engaging, interesting music. But it doesn't mean that that wasn't the impetus for it being created. And Goldberg may have actually been the Russian diplomat's harpsichordist, but we don't know if he actually could play the music at that time. It really doesn't matter. What we should know is that in Bach's um, effects, when he, when he died and they published uh, his belongings in a paper, and basically um, we have a record of what he owned and where it was going, uh, he had kept the, the goblet full of gold coins that had been gifted to him for this piece of music. And so we do know that there was some transaction and Bach did get paid for this. And it might have been Bach's most lucrative work in terms of his compositional career. There is no doubt by performers or aficionados of this work that Bach put a lot of work into constructing these 30 variations. Obviously, in the context of a short podcast episode, I can't go into detail about every, every um, not episode, but every track or every uh, piece that makes up the 32 tracks of this piece if you were to, to count the numbers on a CD player. And again, it starts with this very simple aria, and it's a very personal piece to me because it's one that I learned to play when I was younger. And it's one still today I can play by memory, sitting down at a keyboard. Uh, It's very personal to me because even though the piece is simple, and even though there's a a style that should go into the piece, uh, whenever you really savor box music, there are hundreds of variations that you could make in its interpretation, which is one of the reasons why I think performance of box music as a whole is so interesting. You're dealing with very high quality text and what you do with that has a lot to say about your aims as a performer, uh, your sense of humor, and what you want to say about this this deeply felt music. So I'm going to give you the beginning of Bach's Goldberg Variations and I'm going to give you one of the beginnings for me. This is from Tan Koopman, one of the uh, Bach keyboard players. Uh, Koopman's known most well for harpsichord and organ playing. And he's one of those performers that I I admire deeply. Um, And so this is his version of the Goldberg variations from the aria that opens the work, 
PWV 988 by Johann Sebastian Bach. So it might sound familiar to you. It's uh, it's a famous enough work that you may have recognized some of that. Uh, but that's that's the A section of that aria. That's basically the first half. And what's interesting about about that is Bach uses this binary form really throughout the work, and it becomes a point of controversy, if you want to call it that. Uh, maybe a better word is um, different opinions about whether or not we should take the repeats. Now, the aria does have repeats, and most every performer that I've heard takes the repeats in the aria. And whether or not you subscribe to the performance practice that that many folks are following today, uh, the repeat would give the performer the opportunity for improvisation. And the basic idea or the, the theory behind this is that now that you've heard this, this piece of music once, we are going to present it to you again, but we're going to not give you a carbon copy, uh, but instead we're going to give you a variation of the same thing. And that variation is up to the performer to color or to enhance the way they'd like. And... Even in Koopman's first statement of that piece, he improvises just a little bit. And you, you have to become intimately aware of the work uh, and know uh, precisely where the notes fall and what he does. And, of course, as we imagine, Koopman is sometimes thought of as some, somewhat of a flamboyant uh, performer. Uh, he is known at times, he's been criticized at least, for adding too many ornaments um, too many trills and mordants and, and turns and whatnot to the line. Um, I find them delightful. I find them uh, in Baroque taste, and I don't have an issue with it, although some folks do. But as you might imagine, uh, upon repeats, Koopman will, will add some of his own flavor there, and I invite you to check out his rendition uh, if that is of interest to you. Um, so Koopman was sort of my standard. Uh, the first recording I'd ever heard is actually a recording I do not own. It was of Trevor Pinnock. Uh, in, the, in the late 80s, he recorded the Goldberg Variations for the uh, archive production with Deutsche Grammophon. And that release 
uh, was very, I think, did well because it was one of the mainstream harpsichord uh, recordings of the work. And Pinnock was, I remember, criticized at the time for not taking all of the repeats. He took some of them, but not all of them. And there's this this thing that performers had to worry about, and that is, will it fit on a single CD? And if you know the history of the CD, when Sony and Philips were collaborating on it, they were making a decision about how long should a CD be in terms of length of music. And I think, if I remember correctly, they used Beethoven's Ninth Symphony as the measure stick and said, well, a CD should be long enough to be able to hold a recording of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, for those of you not familiar, is is a long work. It's it's a four-movement work, but it, it lasts around an hour. And or when I say around an hour, most mainstream performances of it weren't uh, speeding through it, and so it could last maybe up to 80 minutes. And so they made that the hard limit of, of the length of a CD. Um, however, when they were printing CDs in the 80s, they were also wise to putting out the identical recordings on, on cassettes and on uh, LPs. And so an hour was basically the cutoff time. You might find recordings at 62 minutes or something around that, but at the dawn of the CD, you didn't find recordings that, that pushed that 80-minute limit. And so therefore, um, folks would compromise and say, well, you know what, we're not going to issue two CDs for 85 minutes of worth of music. We'll, we'll make compromises. And I'm, I'm sure that those compromises were made on, on all different kinds of recordings, not just Box Goldberg variations, but it's kind of an interesting footnote to know why some performers did not follow the repeats. Uh, one performer who's famous for kind of not following repeats is Glenn Gould. And of course, if you know anything about Gould, the pianist, the Goldberg variations are sort of his uh, signature piece. He was, uh, you could almost say, fixated with the music of Bach. And strangely enough, uh, few other composers from around Bach's time. He he did perform some other Baroque works. He expl- he dabbled in, in classical literature. But then his, his other love was uh, into atonal music and, and composers like Hindemith. And he championed new music as well as, as box music. Um, he's an interesting performer. We could probably do several podcasts, episodes just on Gould. But I would be missing something without highlighting uh, Gould and his rendition of Bach, and especially of the Goldberg Variations. Um, Gould's Bo- Goldberg Variations were first released in 1955. That is the... Uh, example I'm going to add here for you, and I'm going to get uh, a little bit of the ending of the aria because I'm a real fan of what Gould does. There was later a film made when Gould re-recorded the Goldbergs around 1981. Um, He went to Columbia Studios in New York, and it was his last Bach recording, Uh, and they they had the film rolling at the same time, and so you got to see... um, what that was like for him being in the studio. He he was somewhat of an eccentric man. He performed on his father's old chair that had the seat missing. Um, he was perpetually cold, and so he's, he would enter a studio with gloves on, and he would ask for the temperature to be high, 
and he simply comes in, and it's it's almost surreal when you see it because the guy comes in, basically sits down, starts playing this aria, he's into it, and then he just bursts into the next variation. He really doesn't even give a whole lot of pause. And that sort of energy and that change of mood from one variation to the other is really one of the signature things that makes his reading of the Goldbergs so, so interesting. And so I'm going to go back to the original 1955 recording of Glenn Gould. It was recorded in mono. And we're going to hear the ending of the aria that sort of sets the stage. And we're going to listen to how he just goes into the first variation, variation number one. He recorded that that first variation in, I believe, uh, around 45 seconds. Um, and as I go through the different uh, versions I have of the Goldberg variations, uh, there's another performer here that, that plays it at 1.55. Uh, of course, some of these other folks might be taking repeats. Uh, when Gould records it again in 81, he takes a minute and 11 seconds to record it. Um, another nice recording I have on piano is by the uh, Korean pianist Dong Hyuk Lim, and he records that at 118. Um, and then we get to my favorite harpsichord performance of the Goldbergs. Uh, this is done by uh, Blandine Renault. It came out in 2011. Um, it's a striking blue cover with her portrait with some filigree, I guess you'd call it, applied, some artistic uh, stuff applied to her to her head. It's, it's an interesting cover. Um, this is a performer, uh, a French harpsichordist who I've kind of known about. I've seen she's been putting out recordings, kind of sampled a few here or there, but for some reason I was drawn uh, to this one, probably because I was able to listen to some samples through something like iTunes. And I... I I purchased it and I immediately fell in love with uh, what she was doing. So just to give you a sense, this whole piece is about making variations on a theme. Um, and in this case, I'm going to give you the same first variation so you can not only hear um, variations among a theme if you were to listen to the whole thing, but you can hear variations among performances, which is kind of fun to do. Um, so this is Blandine Renault, um, my favorite harpsichord version of the Goldbergs, and after we stop, I'll, I'll tell you why.
hopefully you picked up on some of the things I've been talking about. So repeats. Uh, I let the repeat uh, come into that. She does play the repeat in this uh, in this variation. And hopefully you heard that she's added some extra stuff in there, right? She's added some ornaments and some uh, some of her own personality, I would say. But the personality started before the repeat. One of the things that I think is remarkable about this performance is that she does not feel compelled to mimic a machine. Um, the harpsichord, if you if if you'll bear with me, is it can be a beautiful instrument. Uh, I am a fan of the sound of the harpsichord, but it is this metallic, almost mechanical sounding thing, right? Um, it's it's very obvious if you if you were to sit down and, and play a harpsichord just how mechanical uh, a device it is. And of course, a piano is is just as mechanical, but the piano has some roundness to it. It has some, um, of course, it's a different type of mechanism. It's not plucking a string; instead, it's striking a string. And that that mechanical quality of a harpsichord, if you would think of it, somewhat similar to a music box, right? Music boxes is these little tuned. Uh, it's, it's basically like a. Um, an African thumb piano, right? And this thing spins and basically triggers the little metal fingers to sound. Uh, the harpsichord isn't quite that piercing, but it, it does have this mechanical sound. And when you play very straight, meaning you're right with a metronome, you're not, you're not bending time at all, it can get a little tiring. That would be my criticism. Um, it's less of a problem, I think, on the piano, but it certainly can be a problem there, too. And if you listen to an incredibly gifted technical pianist like Glenn Gould, who could just let it rip and his fingers are, are going and everything is just time just so, uh, it can be an incredible, exhilarating experience for the music and for you as the listener. With, with Renault here, she's doing something a little different. And I haven't really come across a pianist who who does this like this, and certainly not a harpsichordist. I would say among our performers that harpsichordists have tended to be slightly more conservative as players than pianists. Um, uh, that is changing, of course, in our in our own time right now. We have a number of young harpsichordists who are trying some different things, and uh, I would put her in this camp of of bending the rules a little bit. And the way she does it is through what we would call rubato. And rubato is probably a concept I've talked about before. I know I've mentioned it in some of my reviews. But it's this thing where you're typically stretching the time a little bit. Uh, it's taking some pauses. It's, it's adding a little bit of humanity or uh, humanism to the musical interpretation. And there is no doubt when you hear it being done, especially with good taste, as I think she does, that it comes across as very, that there's a real human being behind the music and we don't have a computer or a mechanical machine spitting out the notes. Uh, it's, it's a really good recording. It's recorded over two discs, if you were to buy it in discs. Uh, basically, she's, she's taking some repeats and, and doing things uh, carefully. And while she can play fast, she takes her time with some of the movements, which is kind of cool as well. And if you've heard 
lots of recordings, or this is one that you've collected a lot of because it's a big work. This one kind of shocked me when I heard it because it was so interesting and so um, had that human touch behind it. And so that's why it would go to the top of my list as the favorite Goldbergs on a harpsichord. I'll play one more uh, uh, excerpt from the Goldbergs from uh, Miss Renault, and I'll, I'll skip ahead um, to another favorite variation. She adds those those extra runs of notes in the repeat, those those that little extra contribution. It I can't help but smile um, because it comes across in this recording. And, and you know, recordings are stressful. You are trying not to make mistakes, and if a mistake happens, you know you're going to have to go back and fix it and record it over. And sometimes when uh, performers are in the mood to to do the baroque thing and add ornaments. They sometimes come across as uh, not that surprising. And that's one of the other things I really appreciate. Um, a lot of the ornaments and, and extras that we, we get in the repeats really feel kind of spontaneous. And, uh, of course, that, that could be the performer's art and making us think they're spontaneous. But uh, I appreciated the fact that they came across that way, whether they were or not. Um, so this is variation number eight uh, in the series, and so far, if you've been, uh, if you have a copy of this, you'll notice that we're in the same key all the time, and things kind of all start out with the same kind of basic tonality. That's because Bach wrote the original aria in the key of G, and the key of G is. Um, kind of an important key in Baroque music. It's thought of as generally a happy key, a sunny key. And the problem is when you're doing variations on a piece that's in a major mode, that's in a certain key, you, what is your leeway about changing that up? And it would take composers many years before they decided that they could kind of go into other tonal areas with this idea of theme and variations. So I mentioned before Bach is, is writing a theme on that area, and you might be saying, well, gosh, I don't hear it. And I mentioned it's in the bass line. And you almost have to look at the music to follow what I'm talking about. So the piece starts, if, if you're looking at the left hand, basically with a G triad. When the musical notes would be G, B, D. And then we go to the, the tonic note, or the tonic chord, uh, which in this case is D. And so the, the notes are presented uh, uh, F sharp, A, and D. And basically, he's kind of going down. 
And so each variation has that in the bass line. And you're not going to hear it verbatim like you're going to actually be able to see the same notes. But he's hitting those major notes basically in the same rhythmic spaces in the measures. Uh, and so if, if you were to take a highlighter, for instance, and, and line them all up, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody online has done this already, so that you can kind of see how Bach is doing these variations. But, but the left hand would, would kind of match up. And after a while, he eventually does go off this key of G center because it sort of gnaws at us. And it, it also, um, I think, brings up an important point. Should this piece, should any of Bach's pieces, and if we want to expand that even one step further, should any piece uh, or collection in the Baroque of this magnitude where you have uh, roughly 85 minutes worth of music, was it intended to be played at one time? Or did it have meaning for the composer to be arranged in a certain way? I think a lot of folks would say yes to that. When we look at some Baroque collections, we've not uncovered, I would say, all the secrets behind all of them, but there's a number of them where the sequence of the keys means something. And I'm not going to go into too much detail about that, but to, but to basically say... Uh, it could be a sequence of fifths. It could be spelling out uh, a melody. It could be that sequence of keys. When I, when I say keys, I mean the key of G, the key of C, the key of E minor, something like that. You're actually following a pattern, and it meant something to the composer. I'm not sure it meant anything to performers. Quite frankly, I'm of the opinion that that likely... This made a nice collection by Bach. You'd you'd might imagine it bound on your bookshelf. You'd pull it open, and when you wanted to kind of sip from it as a performer, you wouldn't sit down and say, "Gosh, I got to start on page one, and hopefully I have the stamina tonight to get through to the last page and get to the thirty-second piece in the in the in the collection." Uh, I think instead that a performer might perform the aria uh, to give a, a, a sense of a tonal center, to give a sense of where we're starting, and then likely would choose a few favorite variations. And if they were so inclined, they might finish with the aria. That, that's my thinking about how this would be done. And so the idea of listening to G major, G major, G major, G major, over and over and over again um, is, is not the same sort of burden as it was if we were to listen to a modern CD recording of it from start to finish. But Bach does give us some uh, relief. Not all the movements are fast, and uh, some of the, the darkest moments are the, are the, uh, the movement that's, that's in a minor key that, that's still following that pattern in the bass line but does some very creative things with the right hand, and, of course, new types of harmonies are introduced. Um, and again, if you want to get into it, there's enough high-quality music in this collection for you to study it for a couple years and probably still not grow tired of, of what's inside. There's one resource I want to mention to you that's available, and I'll put this in the show notes. It's the Open Goldberg Variations Project. Um, this is something done just a few years ago, and I'm probably going to mess this lady's name up. Uh, it's by Kimiko Ishizaka. I could say that better. Kimiko Ishizaka, and she recorded in 2012, again, just a few years ago, the entire Goldberg Variations, B2V 988, for free. 
And by saying open, she wanted this to be freely available to anybody. A high-quality, well-performed version of Box Goldberg Variations, recorded in a, in a really good studio on a really good piano, and she's obviously an accomplished pianist to re- be able to record this. She did a tour, um, and one of the fruits of their project was not only to release a high-quality um, audio version of this recording that you can find online and download, and which I have, and it's a piano version, but she, um, I don't think we're such purists here that we can't enjoy box music on different instruments. She records this, and then what they do is even more cool if you own an iPad. Uh, they released the Goldberg, the Open Goldberg app. And the app contains all the music. And in addition, it contains a score. And they built a technology so that as you're listening to the variations, it's following along with notes in the score. And for for kind of building an appreciation for what a performer does or what for Bach did as a composer, uh, if you even if you don't have a profound ability to read music, it is a cool experience to be able to study the Goldberg Variations with this app. And it's, it's yet another resource that I would point out to you. Uh, and of course, being open meaning there's there's not really restrictions behind it. You can make copies of it. You can, um, you, you can kind of do what you want with it and not worry about paying royalties, which is, um, I think, a necessary part of, of getting artists what they're due, but it's also a hindrance in our digital age about being flexible. Um, so that's that. Just another resource out there. She does a really good job. It's a nice, clean... Uh, I would say, and not to put her down or put the performance out, it's kind of a middle-of-the-road recording. She doesn't take uh, a lot of uh, artistic chances, but then again, she's not playing it in a boring way either. It's it's kind of a nice, straight recording that that really um, puts forward, I think, Bach's ideas instead of necessarily the performer's ideas. And obviously, I'm highlighting some other recordings here that that do that, and so you have a, a point of comparison. The last, um, if I were to sum up for you, I, I said I liked uh, Blandine Renault's uh, Bach on the harpsichord the best right now for, for the Goldbergs. If I were to point out a piano version, um, Glenn Gould would probably be up there just because uh, he does things technically. It, some of it's just it's breathtaking, and even though I've heard it many times, it's still breathtaking. There is an interesting uh, recording, uh, and I'll try to find the notes f- or the link to it so you can check it out. Uh, it's not a recording I've purchased, but it's one I've, I've read up on and, and watched, I believe, some videos on. Um, some folks were wanted to recreate the Gould recording, but in stereo. And uh, Columbia um, Records, when they were CBS, depending on what era you're talking about, when they recorded this uh, Bach Goldbergs with Gould, they only had mono technology, and they later released a pseudo stereo version. They had invented a, a technology to kind of make it sound like it was in stereo. Um, and since I bought the the the, the Gould Bach edition uh, from Sony on I don't know how many CDs, a huge big CD set, and I've basically got everything he put out by Bach. Uh, which is a great 
great gift to myself. I, I actually recommend it if, you, if you're interested in Gould or if you've heard one or two recordings. Um, it's not all has output. It's just the output of Bach. It also includes some DVD videos that I, I referenced earlier, being able to see him perform, which is kind of interesting too. So that, that's a favorite. But this new recording made just a few years ago basically uh, converted the audio into uh, more or less what we might call a MIDI file, uh, just information about the notes. And they did this in such a way to uh, not only capture the notes he played and the tempo and everything, but also the, the sensitivity of, of, the, of how the notes are played. So if notes are louder, obviously it gets a higher value. They then built some technology into a modern Yamaha piano and they basically re-recorded Gould playing box Goldberg variations on a Yamaha piano and recorded it. So let me go through that again. They took the recording, they converted it in such a way to turn it into numbers. The numbers represented obviously the pitches, the tempo, all that information that goes into performing the work. And then they put that information into a, a new type of piano that can basically, like a player piano, and play it back to us. And not only did they give us a nice stereo recording of that, they also did a recording that they called binaural, uh, which means that they placed the microphone basically where Gould's head would be in front of the piano. And it's intended to be listened to wearing headphones. Um, so to give you the sense of what it actually sounds like to be Gould at the piano. Of course, Gould didn't play on a Yamaha. He preferred Steinway, and uh, Gould did not perform it live. It's a technological intervention, if you will. But it's just an interesting project. And I, I, I haven't bought it just because I already have quite a few recordings and don't know if I need to add this to it. But it's always interested me. And since that experiment and that release of that... The, the same company has put out a number of, of different releases by other composers as well um, using this technology, which I find as a technology person in, in my day-to-day -day job, um, that's just interests me to no end. So I just thought I'd mention that. Uh, uh, I mentioned the recording by Lim on piano. That one came out, oh, let me see here. That's on the EMI label. That's also kind of nice. Uh, it came out in 2007. I like this recording for the Goldbergs, but I like it even more for the last piece that he records. So um, Dong Hayek Lim records the Chacon version uh, by Busoni from the, the second partita for violin. Uh, big, big piano showpiece. Uh, of course, it's a showpiece for the violin, or it has turned into that. And uh, this one is just uh, incredible. Uh, it's it's the favorite one that I've heard so far. And... Uh, it's, it's, it's the track I keep going to when I pull up that album. I, I want to talk, however, about what my favorite recording is of all of the Goldberg Variations. And I'm not limiting this to piano or harpsichord. Um, this recording, uh, I bought it. I listened to it. I'm not sure what happened. It ended up coming into the rotation in uh, the car. And so it's been in the car for several months. And... I, when I do that, and I'm not plugging in the iPhone that has, you know, 
limitless versions of what I can play when I'm driving to work or wherever I'm going. The CD kind of is on repeat, and it's a great way to really get to know something deeply. And so uh, the other day I was driving home, and I'm like, I, I have to do the next episode of BachCast about this, uh, this piece. Um, the Goldberg Variations. I really wasn't prepared to do the Goldbergs at this point. This was not in the normal queue, but uh, I, I adjusted the queue here to, to put this just because I'm having so much fun with this recording. And I'll tell you a little bit about it, and then we'll end the podcast. But first, I want to give you uh, my favorite track from this recording of Box Goldberg Variations. This has been arranged, if you will. Uh, It features piano, bass, and drums. And this, once again, is that same variation that we just heard on harpsichord, but now for jazz trio. This is so much fun. I, I love this track is one I keep going back to, but I tell you, the album's just like this. This is the Jacques Lucier trio. I've I've highlighted them before, I believe, in one of the Brandenburg episodes. Um, of course, he's he's a huge fan of Bach, and he's recorded now beyond Bach. He's played some Handel. He's played, I think, maybe some French composers, and uh, he's gone out and done Satie. But basically... Uh, you, you've got to love this music and you have to get into it to know how to do it right. And even though I love his other Bach and his, you know, he, he came out early uh, many decades ago with the play Bach series. And then he's kind of revisited this in his later years on the Teldec label. Um, this recording of the Goldberg Variations is just so much fun and it's so well done. And it has me tempted to say it's it's their best Bach album that they've done as a, as a trio. So I would definitely, if if that is new to you or uh, you like what you heard, do check out the Jacques Lucier Trio's version of the Goldberg Variations. It came out, I believe, in 2000, again on the Teldec label. And uh, they, they do all 32 tracks, the 30 variations and the two arias. And... Uh, I uh, have to give kudos to his chops. I mean, he's playing a lot of the tough piano work, but he's also handing stuff off to the bass. And um, it, it's just so well done. And it, it's done by good performers who really appreciate this music. And for me, they're pulling out some of the cool rhythmic stuff. They're pulling out those melodies that lurk uh, in what Bach wrote for Two Hands. So, folks... At this point, I'm going to wrap it up. This this episode's gone a little longer than um, normally I like to do for these, simply because uh, I like to keep these short and compact and simply ignite your interest in in music by Bach. Uh, my name is John Hendren, and I'm the host of this tenth episode of Bachcast. 
uh, focused on the Goldberg variations. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, or you'd like to know some really good music to check out and to purchase, go to BieberFan.org. That's my website where you're going to find uh, music reviews. I've been doing this for years, and the website doesn't have uh, everything I've done, but if you go back enough in time, you're going to see uh, a lot of cool stuff. And if if you're just lear- searching for something and you want to know if I've recorded something that you like, uh, use the search function and see if it's in there. Thanks for listening. 